Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Well, hi there. You're listening to After Party Pod with your host, Anna David. Do you guys ever go through that, you know, you record your outgoing voicemail and you hate it and then you record it again and then you hate that and so then you get in that endless spiral? So imagine what that's like. I'm resisting every temptation I have. Well, I'll admit it. This is the second time I've attempted to record this and I didn't get very far in the first one. Um, And I'm tempted because I have only said kind of nonsensical things so far to to stop and start again, but I'm resisting that impulse. Um, And I'll I'll have you know, I have not changed my outgoing voicemail in years, so I don't know what my point is. But you are listening to After Party Pod. My name is Anna David. I'm an author, and I am the proprietress of the website After Party Chat, which I don't feel I've I've mentioned enough in in this... Brief foray I've made into podcasting, uh, but After Party Pod is a is a part of After Party Chat. Uh, you can see After Party Chat at uh, afterpartychat.com, and it's all articles about addiction and recovery, but they're fun, and they're funny, and they're interesting, and it's sort of been my life mission to do this, and um, how I'd love to have you visit, you know? Anyway, uh, this is uh, the podcast. Uh, I... The song you just heard, that great jingle, was written by Seth Rothschild and performed by The Patience. You'll hear it again at the end of this, something to look forward to. And I would like to tell you about my guest today. Uh, she, her name is Alexis Nyers. You can find her on Twitter at, at It's Alexis Nyers. Nyers is hard to spell. I, I only have guests whose last names are hard to spell prerequisite for coming on this uh, podcast. It's N-E-I-E-R-S. Now, if you are familiar with Alexis, you may have had the same issue I did, which was I didn't know really any correct information about her. First of all, I thought it was pronounced Nears. Could have fooled me that it was Nears. And I became aware of her by seeing the movie The Bling Ring and knowing that the Emma Watson played her. And, and I, after I saw the movie, and I remember when The Bling Ring, it, ha- it feels like it happened just a minute ago, but I was in L.A. and um, I have a friend who was writing about it, and it was, you know, those kids who went and stole um, things from Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, and, um, and it was this kind of fascinating story because the kids were all kind of, uh, seemed very glamorous and not much, you know, younger even than the stars. Anyway, there was a lot in there, and then the movie came out, and there was not a lot in the movie, but it was, it was like, 
basically a um, almost like a live reenactment. There was no statement made, and there was, it's so it could say so much. Alexis actually talks about this in the interview, but I completely agree and said that when I saw the movie that there is such an interesting statement in there about society today and what kids today value, and that their role models are these sort of empty. Uh, celebrities, not all of them are empty, but, you know, and, and it's all about acquiring and, and, you know, using things and fame to fill up these empty holes inside of us and all these things. None of that is in the movie. It's the closest thing I've ever seen to a live reenactment ever. But Alexis doesn't know that because she has not seen the movie. Um, but, but anyway, somebody told me after I saw the movie, oh, you know, one of those girls is sober. Now, I'm a cynic because I live in this world today. And so when I hear someone sober, you know, in in this era where every time a celebrity has a scandal, they go to rehab, you know, I sort of assume that that means I need to change my image more than I actually assume that means somebody sober. Then I stumbled upon this piece that, that Alexis wrote for Vice where she interviewed Dr. Gabor Mate, who's this amazing best-selling author of many books about addiction and trauma, and he's devoted his life to helping to solve the heroin epidemic in Vancouver. And in the story, she called herself a drug recovery nerd and wrote, I couldn't give two fucks about going to dinner with Kim and Kanye, but I was dying to speak with Dr. Mate about how we could solve these issues, which I that got my attention. So I started poking around for information and discovered that she really did seem very serious about her recovery, that she truly was a recovery nerd, and that she was married now and had a baby and was basically as far from the character Emma Watson played in the bling ring as I could imagine. Now, so I interviewed her. I met the husband and the baby, and I heard all about uh, Pretty Wild, the, the reality show that she was in, and the bling ring, and jail, and Lindsay Lohan, and yet... She was nothing like I expected. I mean, she made fun of herself for how self-obsessed she was when she first got sober. Um, She talked about how she never should have discussed being in jail with Lindsay Lohan, and she cried about her sister, um, not really her sister, but Tess, the girl that she, you know, was her best friend and lived with the family. Now, they may not make a TV show or movie about this new version of Alexis, but The line that she famously said in the Vanity Fair story, which Emma Watson said in the movie about how she wanted to change the world, just didn't, after I interviewed her, seem all that unlikely. She's pretty cool, guys. Uh, I hope you like this. And here is Alexis Myers and me. Okay. So, Alexis. Hi. Hi. So I was just telling you before I hit record that um, I just recently discovered you were sober. And that, and it was surprising to me just because, you know, I just had seen the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I remember it all seems like it happened really recently to me. Mm-hmm. It probably seems like it was forever. For at like yes. another lifetime ago yep. for you. And, um, and it was this great experience because I, I, I saw that you did this piece on Vice on Dr. Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. And I read it and it was really interesting. And I, and I think I just like saw your name and clicked and did another click and suddenly got brought to your website where I put out this request, can I interview you, thinking I'll never hear back from this girl. <laughs> and, then, and then I did. And here we are. And it was really only, you know, very recently. Yeah. So, um, so you have been sober for... How long? Let's see, almost 
three years, which it feels like it's no time at all. Because sometimes it feels like it's been forever, and then sometimes it feels like it's been no time at all. What, right. But when you get sober so young... Because you're 22 now, is that right? Yeah, and I got sober when I was 19. Right. So it really sometimes it feels like it's been really fast sometimes I'm like wow it's been a while because things change in your sobriety so much from like when you're newly sober to like get a couple years under your belt yeah things really change and your perceptions continue to change and it's it's crazy to me but your life has also changed more dramatically I feel like than most people like you've done a lot of living in 22 years yes right yeah oh yeah and so you you got sober and you met like your husband mm-hmm. through sobriety. Yes. How long were you sober then? Um. So I met him when I was brand spanking new. Like first, I was ten days. Let's see. So December first was my last arrest. Ten days later, I detoxed in jail, got sent to treatment. And where, and where did you go? I went to the sober recovery center uh-huh. in Malibu, and. Uh, I met him at an AA meeting when I was, like, brand spanking new. Right. And I was crazy. I was absolutely crazy. Like, my shares were, like, just so full of ego but, like, pain. And it right. was just destructive. And my biggest problem was that I got, like, best celebrity mugshot and, like, my life was and you over. Would share this like, stuff? I would share this stuff. Right, because right, right. This, these were my problems that I thought were my problems. Right. Like, it was the court's problem. It right. was my old friend's problem. It wasn't my problem, though. Like, it was the media's problem. And did people know who you were and what was yes. going on? So my husband had no clue because he's Canadian. So right. he had just come down from Canada. Right. And he'd never seen the show. He'd heard about it because his best friend's wife used to, like, religiously watch it, I guess. Right. But um, he never looked me up or anything. And over a while, like, we we um, we started to become friends. I disappeared for a number of months. Like, literally went into hiding and just worked with my sponsor nonstop. Like, my life was dedicated to going to three AA meetings a day and working with my sponsor religiously. Well, I was in treatment, so I could do that. Right, right, right. If you had a normal life and you were trying to get sober, you couldn't. But I was in treatment for a year. Wow. So um, I disappeared. And when I came back, all of a sudden I was like this new woman because I'd worked the 12 steps. Right. Um, you know, I'd been doing like intensive therapy, trauma therapy, and we started developing a friendship, which, um, eventually led into a relationship. And just a few months later, we were planning on getting married. So, but okay. So you met him and did he think you were nuts? Oh yeah. So he was like, not, he was like, I'm staying with a yes. crazy girl. Yes. But then you guys became friends. You're going to the same meetings. Well, I, I had that moment, those couple of months, it was like four months that I disappeared and like was really working hard on myself. And when I came back, he realized that like, wow, this is not, you know, they had like bets against me in right. Malibu AA that I would not stay sober. Right. Like literally they would like be betting each other. Like this girl is just not going to make it. There's no way. Cause I was distracted. I didn't want to take responsibility. Then coming back, it was like all of a sudden I was, you know, sane, sane, healthy. I mean, obviously not a hundred percent because I was only like six months sober then. Right. But I was in a much better place. Then we started like going to AA meetings together. He still kept his distance until I had about a year. Nice. And then he asked me out, and I was like, really, I don't know. And I was dating some other like marine 
that was in AA who wasn't really sober. Uh, you know, are, first of all, there are Marines in AA. There are Marines in AA, um, and it just was not working. We've yeah, been yeah. on a couple of dates, and I was like, maybe I'll give it a try. And our first date was that was it. Like I knew that I was okay. So wait, meant to be with them forever. Even though <laughs> even though you'd been friends with him for a while, what was different on the date that hadn't been there when you something been- just clicked like it wasn't a normal day like we went to um we went to dinner at true foods and it was just like this instant like Wait, change you know what that is that's out in Melbourne. oh it's like this place in santa monica that's like vegan veg- right. gluten-free everything right, right, right. and we're just sitting there and it was like super romantic and then we spent like hours and hours and hours together on the beach afterwards until like i don't know 3 a.m or 2 a.m or something crazy like that and um and I just knew, like, we were talking about our lives and our futures and what had happened. And he had been through so much. And, um, you know, he had, like, seven or seven years at the time. So, mm-hmm. or six. Um, and it just, I just knew. Mm-hmm. It just, like, the connection, the energy was, like, so intense that I knew. And, um... There was, it was kind of like a test because he was leaving for Canada and I can't go to Canada because I have like a million felonies. Right. And so they don't let you into Canada. Right. Um, and so I didn't know when he was coming back because he was going up for his visa. And I was like, okay, if I can do this, you know, like if I've, if I can do this, like we were meant to be together. Right. And I did. And How long was he gone? He was gone for like six months uh-huh. or so. And like... It was it was so intense and um, and the thing that I realized in the beginning was I'm falling more in love with him while he's away. You know, like I didn't need the physical relationship with him to fall deeper and deeper in love with him and who right. he was. Right. And then we got married and here how we long, are. How long had you been dating when you got married? We'd been dating for like eight or nine months. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you got pregnant how long after getting married? After we got married, let's see, so four months. And then he opened the treat he had opened the treatment center already. Uh the sober living. The sober yes. Living, so right. he opened the sober living, he opened Acadia, um, and that's initial like we all it was a hangout spot. Like that's just the way that we are. Like open door policy, we have barbecues, we're like all about sober fun. Right. And I used to hang out over there and like that's kind of how the friendship started. Right, and, right. Yeah. <laughs> And, okay, and so, okay, so let's go back. So, okay, how how many felonies do you have, and what are they for? Okay, I have two felonies on my record. The first was for residential burglary. Mm -hmm. The second was for possession of heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, And, the you know, thank God, because it saved my life. And so what happened when you got arrested that time? You, You sort of saw... I, I don't know. You know, there was a there's a number of things that like were divinely orchestrated to like get me to where I needed to be in a place of like absolute like turmoil and I'm this is it. Yeah. So I had gone to jail before, but you know, and kicked drugs and I, you know, my life was like really in shambles because I was living this double life where people thought it was all like pretty and glamorous and television show. And then the other aspect was that I was literally living in a best Western in Hollywood, like shooting dope and smoking crack and smoking oxys. And my life was Yeah, I read horrible. that. So while you were shooting the show, 
Yes. You were basically acting for the show. Yes. Even though it was a reality show. Well, all reality, yeah. Right, but more so than (laughs) most reality shows. Yes. And so you would leave, and then you would go, like, by yourself with other, like, No, no, no. So I would... I was smoking oxys on set. Like, I... You are not going to get between an addict and their addiction. Right. Or a drug of choice. So, like, wherever I went, drugs went. Right. So, um... Yeah, I mean, I obviously had my uh, a very codependent relationship with my sister Tess, and she's very open about the fact that we were using together. And, and is she she got sober, or she's doing really well now. Um, she went through a really rough patch, and now you know she's off of her her drugs of choice, and has decided that she can just drink, and that's okay. And she she moved to Wisconsin and started patching up her relationship with her mom, which is great because they had a really estranged relationship for right. like. I think 10 years. And this is Tess, who was your best friend, who your mom sort of basically adopted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, so okay, but I still actually wouldn't want to go even further back. So how did you start using and what, what how old were you? Okay, yeah. Um, there was always escapes. Like, yeah. I, a lot of addicts and alcoholics say that. I, I had a lot of abuse when I was a young child. I had right. really bad sexual abuse, really bad physical abuse, emotional abuse, like, horrible codependent family, right. like, relationships. It was very intense. And, How um, old were you? During the sexual abuse, three to six years old. Physical abuse... I don't know, I was like 10 to 12, like, but underlying all of this, there's like always emotional abuse. And yeah. I was just reading an article actually, but that someone wrote, um, for, oh my God, I'm in a blank on the treatment center's name. They're like a huge trauma treatment center in, I think, Arizona, but. Oh, the Meadows. The Meadows. Yeah. You know, they, they say any, any experience that a child can perceive as traumatic, but then the, the, the adults in their lives don't comfort them, can. No create like post-traumatic yes terrible post-traumatic stress so it was just really you know quite dysfunctional growing up and And um, did you know that you'd been abused were you aware that it was abuse that you were suffering of course like the sexual abuse I didn't know at the time that that was abuse I didn't even tell anybody until after I was 18 years old I harbored that secret for a long time right the physical abuse I knew like that's not okay um you know and like the alcoholism and as a child of an alcoholic addict you know that when mommy or daddy is behaving that way, that that's not normal. When you're going to friends' houses and their parents, mommy and daddies don't don't behave like that. Right. Don't drive them around drunk. Right. You know, don't try to race people on the freeway while it's extremely intoxicated. Right. Don't right. leave the house with the, you know a six year old in it by themselves to right. get drunk. Like, right. you know that that behavior is not okay and and then you've got like a mom who's doing her best but that's telling you like daddy smokes pot and daddy does this and daddy does that and it just you know it makes it you know when a child doesn't have an outlet to like express themselves or to feel comfortable sharing these things like it just it just becomes worse so my first drink was like in I think fifth or sixth grade Mm -hmm. um you know, like, drinking was never really my thing. Like, I pretty much went straight to drugs. Right, right, Like, right. drugs were, they were readily available. What drugs? Um, started with pot, and then I had, like, a whole a little pill phase. Then I went into, like, 
Um, I was prescribed a lot of medications too from a young age because my mom didn't know what to do with me. So she's like, obviously she's depressed and she's got anxiety and she's got ADHD. So it it was just, it was so many drugs. I mean, then I had hit an acid stage and then I was taking 2CB and 2CI and then all the, you know, all these. What's that? I don't even know what that is. Like crazy, like hallucinogenic, like it's like MDMA mixed with acid. It's just terrible like I would take anything and everything well and then they 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 sort of made a big deal about how on the show your mom would be like oh do you want an Adderall right now yeah you know well my mom like you know god bless her she did not know that you know if a doctor is prescribing you something well, she I think didn't there are a lot know. of people out there that are like that yes and people I, I I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said my doctor prescribed me benzos I've been on benzos for like six years now and I can't get off them and my the amount that I take is ridiculous yeah. and nobody tells you these are extremely addictive you grow dependency you're gonna have to take more and more until you deal with the underlying issue you're going to basically become addicted to a substance right and you can't get off them because you could have you know seizures right with benzos so you're gonna have to go to a medical detox it's gonna be extremely painful nobody tells you these things I, I wonder if now now that it's out there I mean certainly in my day I mean I remember getting I had migraines and I was prescribed hardcore opiates that aren't even on the market yeah. anymore they were so dangerous and they just and I would build up a tolerance because I would take it every day yeah and then they would just give me a stronger one and then a stronger yeah. one but, like, I do, I mean, and the thing with opiates, obviously, is that kids will get addicted, and then they can't get them anymore, and so mm-hmm. it's easier to get heroin yes. than a lot of prescriptions. Yeah. And my whole thing now, especially, you know, like, we were talking about Gabor Mate before, is, like, but why the opiates in the first place? Right. You know, and I really had to take a look at that, like, I used because of the trauma that occurred in my life, and... You know, and I and I agree with him that the genetic predisposition for, you know, this disease, as we'll call it, is is not the biggest contributing factor. The biggest contributing factor is trauma that occurs in early childhood. In, in but there are addicts who had who didn't suffer any trauma. That's true. That's true. These days, though, especially with my generation, I feel like that's really far and few between. Like it with my generation. And my last piece that I wrote with Bob was, like, all about... Oh, I didn't see that one. Oh, okay. it's all about, like, my generation and why, you know, it's, like, the baby boomers, they always are talking about how my generation is just, like, this, like, damn generation because we have Facebook and Internet and Instagram on our cell phones. And it's just not the case. It's just not the case. The truth of the matter is that, like, our the majority of our parents... They were in this, they had these belief systems that, like, if I love my child enough and I, I befriended my child enough that right. they would turn out okay. Right. And in turn, like, we were never taught, like, many life skills. Right. Or, uh, you know, and we look at, like, why the majority of my generation is, like, on unemployment, can't right. seem to get a job, moves back into home after college. Right. Like, right. why is this happening? And And there's, like, so many of us, I think it's like seventy percent of Americans are now on some sort of drug. Right, right. Well, there's it's a difference just, also between the types of drugs that people can be on. I mean, there's SSRIs, which that's are not addictive. But you know, I mean, I do think that's true. My generation was very much like our parents were not 
like all loving and supportive supportive they yes. were more like you know what you're not good enough and mm -hmm. all this stuff that was totally traumatic yes but at least we came up in the world and we sort of felt like we had to prove ourselves because we were never told we were enough. But part of that trauma then translate into yeah. like you trying to parent your yeah. children polar opposite. Right, which also which, creates more trauma. Which creates more trauma too. Because if you're allowing your kids to smoke pot and drink and have sex and right. you know, you're like letting, you're being more of a friend yeah. than you are like, you know, I believe you know, as parents, obviously you're supposed to love your children and provide like a safe, loving environment for them, but you're also supposed to teach them yeah. life skills and boundaries and how to be successful. And for me, it's like, I didn't have self-esteem. Right. And it's a direct result of the fact that like, I was never forced to do esteemable acts. Right. I just thought if my mom loved me enough and we did enough vision boards that right. like, we would right. be okay. But I read that it wasn't really the secret. <laughs> you weren't really raised on the secret. They just did that in the movie. No, okay, so we were raised on Ernest Holmes' philosophy of the science of mind which um, is like this really like, you know, new age thought and it, it has been in my family. Um, I mean, we've been practicing like uh, Ernest Holmes and reading a lot of Ernest Holmes and very been very spiritual for generations and generations and... On your mom's side of the family. On my mom's side of the family and my mom raised us. My yeah. dad wasn't really in the picture for the most part. So, um this, you know, the secret was like this new thing. It's funny because growing up, I was really, I felt ostracized by the community. Like, you're weird. You have life-size Buddhas in your house. Like, right. you're like, your family's off limit. Like, you're not Christian. You're not Jewish. You don't go to church. You don't go to temple. You're not having a bar mitzvah. Your family's like really hippy-dippy. And parents, like, would not let their kids come and hang out with my mom because she was, like, very spiritual and, like, lit sage through the house every day and right. stuff. And nowadays, like, everybody can't get enough green tea and yoga. And it's funny because it's totally changed. And now it's, like, become this, like, huge, cool she thing. She was just ahead of her time. She was. She was. She was, you know, she's always been very spiritual. And um, I think she's always... Um, sought relief in, uh, you know, alternative therapy and alternative right. medicine, and it works for her, and a lot of it works for me too today. Right, right. Um, some of it doesn't, but a lot of it does. Right. I mean, who knows if that's what sort of saved you? You yeah. know what I mean? That gave you the, um, you know, whatever yeah. it was that got you to the point where, you know, because a lot of people don't survive the kind of trauma that yeah. you're talking about. They don't come out yeah. on the other side. Um, but I was going to say about the self-esteem, I mean, don't you think that part of it too was like all the, I mean, and I don't know how much has been exaggerated or was for mm -hmm. show, but like the fabulosity of all of that, didn't you think you got esteem from? But that's fake self-esteem. Right. That's but at the time, you did you know that? But you know, when you're harboring that many secrets and you're that much pain, like that's all ego. Like right. that is not you know, that is not real. That is not something that, like, you know, self-esteem to me today is, like, an awareness of who I am, my place in the world, you know, and, and having confidence in myself that I can achieve anything that I want to achieve and that I am able to do so. Right. Back then, it was, like, this man's going to take care of me and I'm just going to make money doing it like this for a while to have fun. Like, it, it wasn't... It wasn't sustainable. Like it was right. But did you know false. that then? 
Oh, I knew. I knew that it was... Um, I knew because I was still in the amount of pain that I was in. Like, right. I, I had everything that I wanted, you know, like, at my feet. But the only thing that I wanted was to get high. Right. Like, I right. could have had anything. I could have done anything. And all I wanted to do was get loaded. And so the the amount of pain that I was in, there weren't enough drugs to soothe it. Like, right. There wasn't enough heroin or coke or drinking or whatever it was for me. Um, I think that the reason why I ended up falling in love with opiates as much as I did was because, uh, you know, the, when you're nodding out, like, everything's gone. Yeah. Everything's gone. But I couldn't nod out enough. That's the problem. Is right. that, like, I couldn't be in that state enough. And, um... I'm surprised that I wasn't, you know, a heavier drinker because, <laughs> right. you know, or, or like a blackout drinker. It was like opiates were uh, the thing for me. And, you know, and it was like a love affair. Like they were my everything. And so, okay. And so, so basically what I do want to, I do want to like sort of get what, what was real and what has been like exaggerated. So, okay. so you, you were living out kind of in this area, like outside of LA, mm -hmm. but but you and you and Tess were like starting modeling careers. You yeah. decide like you people had come to you. You decided to pursue it, and your mom was super all for it. Yeah, and you met um, a producer mm -hmm. who was like, "I have this idea. Let's do a reality show about how glamorous your lives are." Basically, yeah. okay. And they were fun and, and glamorous at right. the time. Right you now, it's like. Tess and I got into that industry because, well, first of all, Tess didn't even graduate high school. Like, what was she going to do? She didn't want to go back to school. Like, we were pretty much already using right. heavily. So, you know, school's not, like, in the picture. I think Tess got kicked out of the last school because she took too much Ambien, started hallucinating, and called, I don't know. It was just really bad. Right. It, she wasn't going to stay in school. And I had graduated two years early. And so we had we were already using substances, and we it did cited that modeling because everybody told us like oh you should try modeling like you right. should try you know like you've your family's kind of been in the industry because my dad was in the industry for a long time my stepdad was like what did they do my dad was the director of photography on friends for like eight years okay. the nanny spin city and my stepdad is a set designer so he does sets for i mean right now like charlie sheen's show and stuff like that and right. so they were like why don't you just try acting and try modeling it's great money and you can have fun while doing it and I think my mom just kind of wanted us to do something like right. laying around and sitting in Westlake Village and getting high with your friends is like right come on do something like you're right, right. getting to be adults now and right. so it got her off her back uh -huh. and it you know we were just doing these like small odd jobs like Marilyn Manson music videos and like really weird things to sustain our habit like we'd make a couple hundred bucks a day right you know, get your drugs and like on to the next one. And how did you guys meet? You and Tess. Tess um, I've known Tess since I was three. Mm -hmm. So we met in like our parents met because we were in the same ballet class, mm -hmm. and um, they became friends right away. And then they that family moved to Wisconsin or whatever. Or no, so um, Tracy was. Tess's mom, and she had always um, struggled with, you know, her own demons and stuff. And so, 
Frank, Tessa's dad, took full custody. And so Tess was kind of, like, in and out of our lives. My mom's always been, like, a mother figure to Tess. Right. Um, and then Tracy got, I don't know, into, like, some trouble and, like, moved with her boyfriend to Wisconsin. And then Tess didn't talk to her for, like, I think, like, eight or ten years or something like that. Um, Frank still lives out here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's been in and out of our lives since I was three. Right. So, okay, and then how would you guys get cast in, like, the Marilyn Manson video? You would just, like, find out about these things? Were people sending you uh, out? We would just do, like, we'd go on, we'd have, you know, MySpace back then was, like, big. Right. And, um, we joined, like, LA Casting website, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we'd just go out on, like, random auditions and, you know, do photo shoots with people and stuff like that and all of a sudden it you know it started progressing and um tess was doing playboy at the time and so she's like dating rock stars and life was fun life was glamorous right. like we weren't um you know like we were like or i shouldn't say we like i uh was already smoking oxys at that point but i wasn't it wasn't to the point like where I wasn't functioning. Like right. I was having fun functioning and right. you know, and it was great until it wasn't so great anymore. <laughs> right. And so okay, and so you so you, you you met like okay, so you would go to like Lay Do, is that sort of that era? Yeah. So um, you know, as we started working these jobs we'd meet like, Oh, I'm a club promoter, you should come to this club and this is the hot night and this thing and we'd never really like been clubbing before by any means um I was so young I was like 17 well and it's a long drive from this area <laughs> to a club in Hollywood yeah well we had they were sending us limos to pick us right, up and right. you know and so we would be like the arm candy and before you know it it's like we're out every night and we're hanging out with this you know rich and famous of LA and um and Yes, and then we met the producer when we were filming this um, silly movie frat party that was like a low-budget right. Showtime flick. Um, right. <laughs> and he was like, you girls are great. And we totally lied. Like, we had this whole thing like where we were fraternal twins. We were 20 years old, so that way no one would ever want to ID us because we weren't 21. Right. And so everyone would have to pay the bouncers for us to go into the clubs and Wait, um, what do you mean? So because you weren't 21, they'd, they'd pay them off, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, like, I didn't ever need an ID because so right. we were, like, 20 years old. Right, and so that's so, how you could pass it off that you were So sisters. we were, yes. Yeah, so we were, like, fraternal. We had this whole thing going, and people just, like, loved it. Yeah. Loved it. No doubt. <laughs> and, you know, we are a good time. Like, right. if you want to have fun and party, right. we are the girls to do it. Like, we right. don't stop. Like right. We will party until five, six, seven, eight, nine, right. three days, doesn't matter. Right, right, right. <laughs> so you would go out, like the limo would come out here at like nine o'clock or whatever, and then you would just go to like do, and then it was after parties and wherever else. Yes. And then, and so then, and so what about, like, and so then connecting with those other kids and the robberies and all of that. Well, we happened. only knew one other kid. Well, we, Tuss knew a few others just because they lived in the area but we never like associated with them or like we're friends with them right before all this took place and right. so Tess knew Nick um like nobody really like I never went to school with these kids everybody says I went to school with these right. kids I never went to school with these kids right. I met this kid and 
three months later, he was taking me to a house and he robbed a house. Like, right. literally in a three-month time of knowing this person. I didn't know him beforehand. Right. He'd been robbing houses for, like, years and years before that. Right, right. So he was, like, this stylist guy. and He was young and gay and fabulous. And he was dressing us in all these fabulous clothes. They never said he was gay in the movie. <sighs> okay. Yeah, well. I know, but, like, it was kind of clear. Come he was, on. I know, he was, I like, know. wearing Paris Hilton shoes right, or whatever. Right, 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 right. I didn't see the movie, but, like... You did, are you tempted or no? You know, I really feel like I was hoping, you know, because Sophia was doing the movie, that it would really have this, like, strong impact and talk about, like, our society today and this culture of more, more, more and, like, really talk about, like, our obsession with fame and celebrity and getting in it because like the story of the bling ring is a pretty boring story like if it was not celebrity houses nobody would give a damn but because it was and we have this culture of like where you can click a button on your phone and figure out what's going on in anybody's lives and people want they idolize they no longer idolize like spirituality and stuff they idolize fame and fortune and celebrity and so you know the bling ring gave them an inside look into these people's like up close and personal lives. And so if she could have done like a really intense, great movie about that, I would, I would be like, yes, I'm going to go see that movie. But to go and pay like, what is it? Like 14 bucks now to sit in a theater and watch some movie about like the glamorous lifestyle of these kids robbing houses. Okay. But there's a character that is you that doesn't tempt you. No, not really. I mean, if it, when it comes out on Netflix or something, I'll watch it. But, like, I have a little baby now. Like, yeah. my life is not... I don't think people understand that. Like, yeah. my life is not bling ring. Like, right. my life is, is, is a story, is a young girl who is, like, broken and in so much pain and right. her life was in shambles. And somehow, in a period of three years, she has healed from it, gone to school, become a counselor, works with women now, um, is, like, relatable on so many levels to helping people, and is now, like, a wife and a sponsor and a daughter and a a friend and a mother. And, like, that's my life today. So you want to do it? It's like my, you know, I put it so perfectly in another interview. It's like if you did a movie about Sofia Coppola's life and the only thing that you put in it was how she ruined the Godfather franchise. It wouldn't be a fair movie, right? <laughs> like, if you just talked right, about the fact that she right. was famous no, for being famous perfect. in her that's 20s yeah. and, like, she ruined the Godfather franchise. Like, right. and you just did a movie, you cut it off there and you didn't talk about any of right. her successes no. later. Right. Would it be an impactful movie? No. It's like... No, I Come mean, on. no, I mean, I, by the way, I wouldn't be here if I didn't know all, like, if I didn't believe all of that. Yeah. About you. I do think it's remarkable. And like, and I do, I mean, it's kind of interesting because we were talking before I started recording about how you're really good at ignoring, um, just sort of like hostile, anonymous people on the internet. Yeah. And I'm decent at it, but like, I bet you've had to really, de- <laughs> did you have to learn that or you just knew? To be honest, like these days, especially in, since I've been sober, the majority of people that write me are all support. Yeah. Like you've like, I just did a radio interview, um, and people called in and this one woman's like, I'm a mother of a 10 month old and I was a heroin addict and I only got sober because of you. Wow. Like those are the types of calls that I get or this, you know, other girl that said like, I was going to commit suicide, but then I saw your Twitter and your blog and you know, I, and I feel like there's hope for me now. Those are the types of people that write me these days. Right. 
Now, of course, there's, like, the haters and, like, the trolls who I believe are addicted to hating. Like, yeah. Like, you can be addicted to hate. Like, yeah. honestly, if you're a hater. Yeah. I used to listen to that song, um, Haterade. Did you ever listen to it? <laughs> no. Like, I'm but... sipping on that Haterade. It's with, like, Nicki Minaj right. and stuff. Yeah, okay, yeah. so, like, that was, yeah. like, my theme song. And now it's just, like, you can literally get, like, people get a rush out of it. It's like, well, <gasps> yes. I think I'm it like, makes them feel powerful. I mean, like, yes. to me, I feel like anybody who does that, who spends their life commenting, you know, not, I mean, and like, below the belt yes. people, mm-hmm. it's like, they're, they probably suffered trauma, too. A lot. Yes. Yeah. And they don't know how. They have never had yes. therapy. They don't have the 12 steps. They don't have tools. Yes. And so they think, they get triggered by someone who they see as doing stuff yeah. when they're not doing anything. And that, and that rage that they yes. felt towards whoever traumatized them mm-hmm. gets expressed towards yes. X random person. And it really is sad. And, um... It really, and in, it, it's it, it's sad. It's really sad. And so, well, you know, the majority of the time, I just I just write it off. I'm yeah. just like, whatever. Like, you're gonna just have your belief system. So I'm not here to change people's belief systems. I'm here yeah. to help people change if they want to change. Right. But right. like, if you want to be wrapped up in your toxicity of a, right, it's of just your too situation, bad. It doesn't. They think it makes them feel better. You I know? know. I know. And I get it. By the way, I used to, I had this like when I first started like blogging or something. I wrote about meeting some writer was before I'd published a book I wrote about meeting some writer at a party and that he was rude to me Mm. and it was his book party and the writer clearly had a Google alert about himself I did this was before I knew about these things Mm -hmm. and he commented on my blog that no one read and he said it was my book party for my first book I was really really suffering with major social anxiety I'm Mm -hmm. sorry if you felt I was rude oh wow completely changed I I, and I just sort of made that decision that I'm never going to write anything negative about anybody yeah Ever get? Sometimes if it's like I'm, I'm sort of joking about someone who's like so super famous, they're never going to hear it. Whatever, that's yes. different. But I will not, because and then I've read mean things about myself yeah. that that I know are not about me. I have to be careful. Like back, I my one of my biggest regrets, and um, I wrote about this when I was interviewed by uh, Vice before I started writing for them was I did this interview about Lindsay Lohan about her in jail because we were in jail together right. or whatever. And I did it for the money because I needed the money. Like, right. I just got out of jail. I needed to support my drug habit. Like, right. I'm sure she would understand. Okay. Right, so, um, now she's in treatment and I've seen her around. And she came up to me in a meeting. She had no idea who I was. And she was like looking at the baby and I was like, oh my God, this is your moment. This is your moment. But then I was like, I don't want to do this in a meeting. But it made, what it did wow. was it made me feel just so horrible because I have to realize, like you were saying, like you don't know what people are going through. And so we can make just small comments like, um, you know, someone from my past wrote me and I said, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're healing. My husband pointed out to me, well, you're insinuating that he's like not doing well and that he's not healing. Right. And so we just have to be so careful because you just don't know what people are going through. Yeah. You know, and just one little thing can really send somebody off the edge. And so was it my place to go and be speaking about Lindsay Lohan or her reaction to jail and crying in jail? Of course she was crying. She's in jail. Right. You were crying too, I bet. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It was a freaking mess. So, you know, it it certainly wasn't my place. And I, you know, if I could take it back, I totally would. But you just never know what someone's going through. 
Yeah, and I do think you have to sometimes learn the lesson that way yeah. by doing it and feeling how bad it feels. Yes. And knowing that, you know, well, that... If you have any sort of a conscious, you know, like... Yeah. I should not have done that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, but I think that, I mean, I think the truth is, I think with all that stuff, it's just remembering that, like, we're all, we're all sick in yeah. our own way. Mm-hmm. And so that, that person who's just spewing negativity on the internet, Lindsay Lohan, who, the person from your past, whoever it is, the guy I wrote that was rude to me at the yes. party, me, yes. you know, that we, and so that helps it to be, you know, to come from a compassionate place mm-hmm. and to go, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And we're all making mistakes, but we're trying, you know, mm-hmm. some of us are trying, but I mean, I believe everyone is doing the best they can. Everybody is. And that, that was another thing that I had to realize, like, um, when you know becoming a sponsor and stuff is like I don't know what these people are going through like I'm here to help you if you want help and to take you through the steps I'm not here to have opinions about your life or to tell you what to do or who to date or anything like that I'm here to help you like I'm not the relationship police I'm not here to police your life and tell you who to hang out with and how many meetings to go to like I'm here to listen to you and I had like a big moment of clarity where it was like I realized if my sponsor didn't have those like deep listening skills to listen to what I was saying and to not have any opinion about it I wouldn't be sober right because that's all I needed and I think that people like lose that um yeah they don't realize that that's what AA was all about in the beginning it was just two alcoholics talking to each other and that's one of the greatest things that I've learned from Bob um you know, is that when people are on their deathbeds, they didn't talk. He says, like, when people are on their deathbeds, which he's, I guess, been there, been there yeah. a, a number of times with, I think he's got like 18, 19 years or something. They never talk about the, the fact that they could have made more money or right. whatever. They talked about the fact that they could have had better relationships with people. Right. And, um, and I think that people don't, they forget that. Like, they, they become so religious about this book. That book was made to reach people who couldn't get to a meeting. Now that there's this many meetings in the world, like it's about the relationships that you build and the communication that you have with people and really saying to someone like, I understand you. Right. And I love you. Right. And I care for you. Those are things that I had never really heard right. before getting sober. Right, right, me neither. And so having that experience is like so vital i think so many people get wrapped up in like this you know i call it like nazi type sponsoring right it's just ineffective like it just turns people off of the program like you need right. to like all of a sudden you're becoming someone's doctor and telling them you need to be on this medication and that medication right. and you need to be, get off your medications i personally did but that was my choice i'm not going right. to tell a sponsee like you can't be on antidepressants like right. Right. You know, the Pacific group is great, you know, but it, it just, that's dangerous. I had that um, with a woman who was sponsoring me, and she was PG. Mm-hmm. And um, she, because my first sponsor went out when I had a year. She's mm-hmm. actually back, and we're good friends now. But, but and, I, and I had this woman, and I remember I was doing step work in her car outside mm-hmm. a meeting, and I said something about medication, and she was like, you're on medication? And I said, yeah, I'm taking an SSRI. And she's like, you're not sober. Get out of my car. That is an experience that happened to me, you know? And luckily, <sighs> yeah. you know, I was 
sober enough to realize that it was her ignorance that yeah. was ruling her at that yeah. moment. But no, I mean, the problem is, of course, that there's no training for sponsoring. Yes. The other problem is that oftentimes the new people are attracted to the sickest people in the rooms yes. because that's who they relate mm -hmm. to the most. And oftentimes the sickest people are the ones that are going to corner the new people. Yes. So, and it is, it is not a perfect situation no. no and i think that it's lost that that um i think it's lost its roots like right. it really has like i think that um you know one of the questions that i had that i don't think i published for the vice article is this whole controversial thing about using ibogaine and ayahuasca to treat heroin addicts and alcoholics like severe heroin addicts and dr gabor mate is a big fan of it he uses it and, and it's like, there's just so many different alternative methods and people, but the biggest thing is like the healing, is healing from the trauma. And I don't care how you get your healing. Right. What I care about is that you're getting it. Right. And, and I feel like it's my job as a sponsor to do my best to help you accomplish that. And it's like the steps were written to just be a guide and like we're not supposed to do much more than that like right. i'm supposed to take you through the steps and really listen to you right and that's it if you right. need therapy you've got to go to a therapist if yeah. you need medication you've got to go to a psychiatrist i'm not right you know and um it's hard because i in the beginning i had such strong opinions about medications like suboxone yeah i didn't get sober on suboxone i kicked cold turkey right because i was in jail you know, but this whole like suboxone maintenance, like be on suboxone for a year. I in the beginning, or be on suboxone for life. For life, you know, thirty-six milligrams of suboxone every day. It's like you're high. Yeah, do you not have that <laughs> you know? opinion anymore? Well, I I I have a little bit more of a spiritual approach to it now, which is like if your spirit is ready. You know, it's much better to be on suboxone than it is to be like slamming heroin, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously for a number of reasons, health reasons, the fact that it doesn't spread, you know, dirty needles and right. things like that. Obviously it's much better to be on Suboxone than it is if you're not ready to get like really sober and do the right. work. Um, you know, it's such a touchy itch issue. Like it's, I have mixed opinions about it. And, um, you know, now with like the Vivitrol shot, like that's right. always a great option. You know, if you, you know, really want to try this, but you're a chronic relapser, you know, but the, the thing is, is like the reason why you're a chronic relapser and the reason why you use drugs is because your life is painful, right? too painful right. to deal in the world. And so if you could give yourself by yourself enough time or just allow yourself to have enough time to let the healing begin. Do you think the healing can happen if you're on Suboxone? I feel like it's kind of spiritual bypass is what right. I call it. Right, like, right, In order to grow, in my experience, in order for me to grow and to develop into the person that I am today, I had to be medication free and I had to be willing desperate and willing enough right. to walk through my past right to address it and to be courageous enough to like heal and, and, and i you... couldn't have done that myself being on any medication because i had been on antidepressants 
for years mm -hmm. and Adderall for years, anti-anxiety <coughs> medication for years. I couldn't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Like it was making me insane. Like mm -hmm. I don't know if I if people should be on Zoloft for ten years. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of like well, it's hard to know if you're mixing it with me, a lot of other drugs yes. and drinking. But for me, it was like I couldn't. When I first got sober, um, they put me on Effexor and Wellbutrin together. Mm -hmm. Couldn't do it. Like I really needed to heal. Like have weeks of crying and pain and just what seemed back then like suffering but now seems like liberation like I really needed that myself and you needed therapy I'm assuming yes so I did like a lot of um I did EMDR yeah, which was great yeah. for post-traumatic stress especially for the sexual abuse and trauma yeah needed the EMDR um but like while I was in treatment I was only asked maybe a handful of times if that have you, what was the trauma that you experienced in your childhood? And I think that that's a major missing link. And I felt like there was a lot of judgment. And it was kind of like a pissing contest. And was it done with a group? I did a lot of group therapy, yeah. and then I did a lot of one-on-one -on -one therapy too. But I just really needed someone to say, like, you don't have to change for me, you know, and that I love you even if you do decide that you want to continue to use it. I didn't, what I needed was for people to stop shaming, blaming me and telling me you're a junkie, yeah. get your shit together. Yeah. You have a terrible life. You're going to kill yourself. Or you're a bad person. You're a bad person. What are the choices that you're making? Well, it's not a matter of choice. It tells me right, right in the big book. Like right. I think on page 24, 26, say it's not a matter of choice. Like the alcoholic will always choose to drink or use right. like you're without defense against the first drink right. like there's it's not a matter of choice in my head like I'm gonna be a good person I'm gonna be a bad person right, right. it's like no I'm gonna do whatever it takes to not feel the way that I'm feeling anymore right 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 and I need it that's what I needed like in treatment I needed that from my family to say like you don't have to change for me and when I was dealing with my sister Tess she was in a really just had gotten really bad and um, I contacted Bob and I said, Bob, what do I do? I want to do an intervention. I got a call. She seems like she's like dying, I guess. That's what somebody had told me. Mm -hmm. I want to go do an intervention. I've got my private investigator following her. I've got her dad. <laughs> her dad. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, I've got her dad ready to like jump in and take action. Like right. we're in a swarmer house, seven a.m. Like, and he was like, "This is an ambush. This is right. not." But you see that on like intervention and right. A and E shows and stuff right, like right, that. Right, like right. that's how interventions in my eyes right. look. Right. Um, and he was like, "Why don't you just ask her if you could take her to breakfast?" <laughs> and I said are you kidding? And he was like, no, I'm serious. You need to go into this not expecting her to change for you. Right. And I was like, oh my God, I owe her the biggest amends ever. Like it just clicked. Like I need to love her because I know the beautiful little ballerina princess, right. baby girl, angel yeah. that she is. And not be ashamed or embarrassed if somebody comes in with track marks, 80 pounds, looks totally different than who right. I know this person to be. I needed 
to go into that situation and make an amends to her for trying to force her to change that way, I'd be okay with myself. Right, right. And, um, and I did just that. My husband and myself and Bob took her to breakfast. And I gave her a hug and I made an amends to her that was, like, so beautiful. I've, it was my best amends yet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she looked at me and she said, I'm not ready. Mm. And I said, that's okay. Why don't you call me next week and we'll go to coffee. And, um, ugh. And I just, I hugged her and I let her go on her way. And I waited patiently and just, Bob's like, just wait. It'll be a few weeks or a few months. She will call you when she's ready. She now knows that she has a person that she can call, that she can rely upon, that she can trust, that loves her no matter what. Right. And when she's ready, you will be the person that she calls. And what do you know? It was only a matter of weeks. But she needed to go and continue to have her experience. The moment of clarity that happens for every addict and alcoholic that gets sober, that moment, that bottom, whatever you want to call it, is so personal. Yeah. And it can't be created no. by anybody else. It's a moment that just happens. It's very spiritual. It's very sacred. It's very special. And it can't be created by anybody else. And I need to wait to let her have her own moment. And she did. She did. That's amazing. And now she's doing her own thing. She's doing outpatient. And who cares if she thinks she could still drink a glass of red wine? Not my fucking problem. Right, Excuse me. Right, right. Not, not my, I can't have opinions about it anymore. I've got right. to let her do what works best for her. At least she's like on a path. Right. That's not of like complete self-destruction yeah. and suffering. Right, right. <laughs> and how, how are you guys in touch all the time? Yeah, I mean, we text on a regular basis. Um, you know, and she loves her life out there. She loves... I mean, clearly, like, she's loving the quiet life of living in Wisconsin, which is great. Like, if that's what you want to do, she's right. got, like, a boyfriend now who, like, is not some, like, L.A. guy. Like, right, right. And if that works for her, then great. Right. I mean, you guys have both kind of gone 180 degrees from where you were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... Life is all... You know, the only thing that I know for sure is that life always changes yeah you know everything else i don't i don't yeah. really know and that my goal on this planet in this lifetime is to evolve and to change and to grow um and and to deepen like my spirituality which is like my spirit my connection to this universe to this world to my higher power that is the only thing that i'm you know it's like that that step 11 and 12 that's my life today well and interestingly it was what you were sort of raised to believe anyway yeah yeah so um The funny thing is, is that I had tried it all. Like, I had gone and stayed at ashrams and prayed with monks and, you know, tried to be a Christian, then Jewish, then Catholic. Like, I had tried it all, and I didn't realize that, you know, that it's a combination of things. It's, like, first relieving yourself of the trauma. Right. And, um, you know, the steps are in an order for a reason, and then I decided to deepen 
right you know and that work with the assistance of therapy and support groups and then you know because when I first got sober it wasn't just drugs and alcohol like I had an eating disorder I had all the trauma so like right. I had to deal with a modality like a modality uh no like a what sort of dual diagnosis yes situation. yeah and I and I needed to like tackle all of these things um pretty much at once I was still dealing with my eating disorder up until what, what was it um, so I was just like a binge eater, like I would eat, 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 and then I would starve, starve, starve. Right. And like, it got to a point, actually when I first started dating Evan, where he said like, I love you, but you need to go talk to somebody about this. Cause I was just too, way too thin. Right. Way too how, thin. How, how much did you weigh? Unhealthy, like 108 pounds and I'm five foot seven almost. Right. Like, right way too thin like my clothes are falling off of me and I'm not eating and I even asked him this question I was like do vitamins have calories like that's where my head was like and for me it was like another escape and that was another thing that I had to to deal with that was like after I had a year right um sober so there's a lot of things and, <laughs> and then um and you went back to school because I'm doing my KDAC right now is that what you yes. did yes so I did a program through, you're familiar with Sober College, right? No, actually. Okay, what so is Sober that? College is, it's like a rehab. They do long-term care. They offer, they offer classes and um, stuff like that for, to, they really help people get back on their feet. And so they offered the KDAC program through the Institute of Chemical Dependency Studies. So they had a teacher from Channel Island State come and teach a six-month course. Um... I still haven't done my practicum hours because then I got married and had a baby. Right. I really want to do my practicum hours. Was I it think only- it's more because your program's two year, right? Yeah. I was like six months. Six months. What are you talking about? It's like real, it's like an intensive six month program. So you're and in school full time. A lot of it's work at home. It's a lot of like right. you know, like papers and effort and field work and stuff like that. But it's um how many intern hours do you have to do? I don't know. I'm only I've only done a year and it's been exhausting. I can't uh, even believe how much work it's been. If I'd known, because I don't even have plans to become a counselor. Yes. I'm doing it for quote unquote. That's fun. what I did too. And I like I wanted to learn about the disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've learned a ton, but it is so much work. I can't believe that there's an internship and then. I haven't even, I, then I have to take the test. <laughs> I mean, like, that's not even within the realm of what I'm thinking. Yeah. I might not ever take it, you know? I don't know if I will either. Yeah. But you know what? I love the experience. I, Greg Hanley, the owner of Soba, basically said, you're going to go to school while you're here. Because that's where you went to treatment, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and thank God he did, because it, like basically saved me so I was learning so much about myself yeah. and so much about the disease and I was like brand spanking new like a month sober and he was like you're going to enroll in this right <laughs> and I was like okay great um and so I was doing so much like between treatment and groups and therapy and 12 steps and AA meetings in school like I was like recovery right was I ate it was all you did yeah all I did <laughs> yeah it's it's intense um what and so and then getting pregnant in terms of the eating disorder that trigger no so i'd done a lot of you know healing before i got pregnant yeah like the eating disorder stuff i mean it's typical that we cross addict and that we become obsessive about other things um obviously 
it was I was on a, a good track already and so I just needed a little bit more support and I right. needed to address the this you know body dysmorphia that I was dealing with that right. I still deal with today right. I don't believe my eating disorder will probably ever go away right um the good thing is is that today I'm able to be so aware and so connected to myself and my feelings and where I'm at and it's like constantly checking in you know with my daughter I gained like 50 pounds Right. While I was pregnant, which is like a lot of weight. They say you should gain like for my height and weight, like 35 to 45 pounds. I gained like 50 pounds or something like that. So it wasn't an issue. It's an issue now that right. she's, uh, I'm like kind of obsessive over it. I keep trying to check in, reminding myself to go slow. Like I'm right. doing lots of hot yoga and walking and right. making sure that I'm eating enough calories. I don't own a scale. Right. <laughs> Um, I just want to go back to feeling healthy and like myself. Right. And um, it's definitely a challenge. I think it's a challenge for every woman, though. Like, okay, you all of a sudden you have this baby. Your hair starts falling out. Your skin starts breaking out. You're like 20 pounds heavier than you were right. before you had the baby. It's the hardest 20 pounds to get off because your body, when you're breastfeeding, says you need to keep eating and yeah. producing more milk like there's so much going on plus you're taking care of a newborn you haven't slept in three months um <laughs> right so it's a lot you know and uh, connecting i really wanted to start a mommy group um for like women in recovery some sort of recovery i don't care if you're in naaa al-anon i wanted to create a group for young moms because we all need support i mean moms with young children right because we all need support um, and we can't make it to meetings because you've got a screaming baby that's attached to your hip. Like I'm exclusively breastfeeding. So like right. to take her to a meeting is, but you could all take the babies to the one meeting. That's all my screaming. whole thing. And, and like, to talk about the, because every sober woman has food issues. Yeah. I'm sure. So to talk about that, you know, to talk about all of it, like just to have a, where we really listen to each other. We set goals and it's like something that's like light and fun and nobody cares if your kid poops through its clothes right, or right. throws up on itself right, and like right, it's right. like not this big you know if one of them's screaming it's like if we could do it at a park or something um do it listener i would if love you to have it. a new baby <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and you're sober email me yeah Alexis, <laughs> yeah if you live in this area like i was thinking because so many of my my community is in Malibu, Malibu yeah. and um, Palisades and Santa Monica. Like, if we could all get together at the Malibu Bluffs once a week after your older kids are in school, so, like, 10 a.m., right? you know, and do it for, like, an hour and just be committed to it and some, you know, switch idea. off snacks. You know, it's not necessarily, like, an official 12-step AA meeting because it's right. open to, like, as long as you're in recovery. Right. It's a great idea. Come. Please. <laughs> I, I can see it. I, do, do you go out to Malibu. How, how often are you at the um, at Acadia? Okay. Well, my husband lives there. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, I was like, yes, <laughs> he pretty nice. much lives there. Okay, okay. When we were first dating, he lived there. Um, and I was like, you need to move out of the sober living because I can't date you while right. you're living here. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. Um it was intense he's he's there like that's why I think it works so well because a lot of these places like the owners are never right. around 
they are so hands-on. Right. I mean, we have such a different approach than every other treatment center or sober living out there. Um, and it works really well. My husband's there six days a week. His business partner's there six days a week. They're there all day long and most nights. Right. Um, so it's like a home for us. It's like a second home for us. Um, Your beach house. Yeah, pretty much, and it's great, and we love it. We just started the farm uh, with on the second property, which is doing really well, and we love it. Um, and it's really community. It's really community. One of our executive chef lives with us. He's also in recovery. He got sober at our house. Right. Um, and it's really like it's a family. They they all went to Hurricane Harbor together yesterday. Like it's this in beautiful community where everybody's held accountable. We do women's group and men's group uh, once a week on Tuesday evenings. We have a barbecue that's open to the community and other treatment centers and other sober people. Um, uh, on Fridays, it's a huge meeting. It's every Friday. Every Friday. Wow. Uh, six o'clock uh, is when the barbecue starts. Seven o'clock for the meeting. Um, it's great. We've been getting like 40 to 50 people every week now, sometimes more. Um, and it's a place where you can feel safe about getting honest. Uh, our house manager at the Yellow House is great. She's got nine years, you know, battled an eating disorder. Uh, she's got her master's in psychology and is going to school and works with us full time. And it's just lovely like I don't I feel so lucky to be a part of this community and right. to see people come in that are so broken and they normally stay with us for a year I don't know if that's normal in other sober livings I don't know think it is not. but normally they stay with us for like a year we get them on their feet get them to jobs school like and it's thriving and long-term yeah. health and success I mean, the number one predictor of, you know, we can't predict who's going to stay sober, but long treatment, you mm -hmm. know, treatment for nine months yeah. is, you know, at a minimum is yeah. the greatest predictor we have. So, and then what's your arrangement with Vice? Do you, are you on, do you write a, a column for them? Yeah. So Vice, I did an interview with this uh, yes, I read kid, that. Mitchell Sutherland. Um, he's great. He's fabulous. And we just kind of stayed in contact because he's like sober too and young and um, we just kind of hit it off and he was like, do you want a, to write for us every, you know, every other week for our, you know, Sunday, Sunday issue? And I was like, yes, I would love to do that. Yeah. Because it's, I'm not a writer. Okay. I'm certainly not a writer. I've, but they're good. They're good. And you kind of get, so you're like, I want to interview Dr. Mate. And then, yeah. So I just write, yeah. so I just write Dr. Mate and I'm like, Hey, I'm a new writer. I work for Vice magazine. Obviously he knows cause he's Canadian and Vice like originated in Canada. So he knew who Vice magazine was. Yeah. So then he like researched me and of right, course you researched <laughs> me. But it actually, I think that that's kind of what made him want to do it more. Right. Because you type it in and not the first thing that doesn't come up is like Vice magazine articles. It's like Alexis Nyers, heroin addict. Alexis right. Nyers goes to jail. Alexis Nyers. You know, right. so he's like, who the hell is this person? And he really Really did his work. Like, so what did he come back to and say? <laughs> well, he was just like, how do you feel about the movie? And Emma Watson's playing you. And like, oh, yeah, you had a troubling past, too. And I was like, wow, how do you know all this? This was all um, on the phone or over email? On the phone? Skype. Okay, okay. Skype. 
we had like, and I was so nervous because he's a genius. Yeah, I'm just you just. It's like, like I said in the article, like put me to dinner with Kim and Kanye. Right. I don't care. Right, right, right. right. Put me on a Skype session with right. Dr. Mente, and I'm like a jittery little girl. Like He's I can't. Cool. He is cool as a cucumber. Like yeah, he is yeah. like relaxed, at peace, yeah. like totally serene, knows his shit. And like I almost, I was asking him a lot of questions that obviously he's answered before. Right. And so I was like, he's going to be so annoyed. But I, because being, you know, interviewing someone, especially, you have to get what they say. Like, you can't go, oh, I took it from, you know, you can't take it from anywhere else. So you right. kind of have to ask the same questions over and over again. Were you writing it down? I'm just curious, no. like, as a reporter. So you were tape recording. I was Skype recording. Skype recording. Through Skype. Right, Sent right. it to an intern. I had to type up the whole right, thing. Right, right, I felt right. bad. But. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, no. It's uh, and then you process. try to, like, condense this 45-minute long interview yeah. into this, like, small interview. Right. And, you know, I really, that that week, Corey Monteith had died. I, I knew right when they said he died, I was like, uh, heroin and alcohol. How, how did you know that? I just had a feeling. Like, people are so uneducated about the fact that, like, if you mix downers together, you're, you're, you'll kill yourself. Right. You know, like, if you drink and then pop an oxy or Vicodin like you're risking your heart stopping um because you know it's not like if you mix coke and alcohol which um, tons of people do because coke brings you up the yeah. alcohol brings you down but when you mix that many downers together yeah, you don't die from coke that much no or, or meth no even, you know mm-hmm. it's yeah. mixing yeah. these substances mixing benzos and opiates mixing opiates and alcohol yeah yeah uh, and it's so dangerous. And at first I thought, you know, that weird heroin was going around up there with the fentanyl in it. And oh, it, people gosh. were just dropping like flies. Like, And it happens every couple of months. And, um, in, in, uh, you know, in, in Vancouver they have the, the downtown east side, which is right. like the greatest population of addicts in the entire world. And it's just like this little city and this little part of the city where everybody's addicted to like heroin and crack and they have the safe injection sites and that's where dr mate works right he doesn't work there anymore but he did for like 12 years or something like that um where he treated them uh i mean his patients but yeah it's just so every couple of months they'll get the shipments from china of china white and it'll be so strong and people won't know and they'll just die like people just die on every street corner for a couple of weeks, and then that'll be that. Um, and so I thought, you know, they had this one kind was, that was like cut with fentanyl, and I thought at first it could be that, but then I was like, no. And I told Mitchell that, and he was like, you're right. And he was like, you need to write about, how, you know, a little bit about like heroin addiction. That's when I thought, I've got to call Dr. Matic because I'm right. such a big fan. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, and I really, I really want to like gently educate people yeah. through my experience. Like, I don't want to push shit down your throat and tell you what you need to be doing. I used to be like that in early sobriety. I used right. to be like, you need right. to do this and you need to do that. Right. And I was like a Nazi sponsor, and I was crazy. And uh, now it's just like it just doesn't work. I don't know what works for everybody. I know what works for me. Right. But like, I've known tons of people that were addicted to heroin and opiates, really dealt with their trauma, and now are able to have a glass of wine once a month and be totally fine, and their life's in order, and they have a job, and it's like none of my business. Yeah, I know. Like, that's, that's a totally... hard thing to learn. It know? is. Yeah, because I, I definitely was like very much like n- not just alcoholics and addicts need to do this. Everybody needs to do twelve steps. Yes. Like I was so 
full on. We need programs for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, these poor people who don't have a problem, so they can't like discover the twelve steps. And then it it really was a journey to get that like yeah yeah, that I don't know that yeah I know people that 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 could quit their drug of choice and and seem to be seem to be fine. I don't really know you know what's going to shake out. But I know um, a lot of them that are that are like moms now and they have their shit together and they work and they're doing great and a lot of them work in recovery like they had abused uh i know someone who abused meth for a while and then you know she really dealt with her trauma like trauma is the root of it like yeah she really dealt with it she got married she had some kids her priorities changed like, yeah. she became really accountable she worked with she did this with a sponsor like told her sponsor don't think i'm an alcoholic they right. worked together she said try it you know go and try to have a glass of wine it worked for her Good for you. Yeah, but there are a lot of people. <laughs> it doesn't it work does for. It does not work for. And I'm I'm not that interested in, in discovering. I kind of have a theory. I'm not one of those people, and I don't. Yeah. I'm not into doing the research. You yeah. know. Yeah. You know, it's to each his own. I just it, the whole thing is just knowing that it doesn't. What works for me doesn't necessarily work for everybody yeah. else. You know, like Alexis, it's not Alexis's 12-step program. Right, right. You know, it's just a 12-step program. (laughs) You know, and like, I am not the queen of AA. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, and that my opinions don't, you know, not everybody wants to hear them. Yeah. One thing that I love about my husband is that he... He yeah, he's like gentle, kind, loving, compassionate, and he's very spiritual. All of those things are great. But... He does not give his opinion or advice unless you ask for right. it, which is a very hard thing to do. Even with his sponsees, like he'll listen and he'll listen, but unless you ask him for his opinion, right, he's not going to give it to you. Right, right. You know, he's he's like, I don't know at all. Yeah. You know, and I and what what I do know is that. Um, you can really turn people off by trying to like force them to agree with you or to do what you say. Yeah. And it runs them right out of the room. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm all about that. I do think that, that the gentle education is yes. the key factor because, you know, and that's always been, you know, for a long time, I, I only would sign off on articles about addiction or books about addiction that were funny because uh-huh. it's like the medicine goes down a little more smoothly. Yes. It's like laced in humor. Um, and that was always my agenda is like kind of trick people, make them think you're writing about something like hip and cool and funny mm-hmm. and then sort of be giving a message at the same time. I mean, that's the whole theory behind after party chat. That's, yes. that's it. That's um, great. But it's... Um, yeah, you get more, whatever's the expression, you get more flies with honey or whatever. Yes. It's definitely, um, I think, not being rigid and not being adamant and not be and just be, like, you know, whatever. Showing, showing attraction, not promotion is yes. a great way that other people have found to talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, okay, wait, so this has been awesome, but we didn't do our game yet. Okay, yeah. Okay, so the game is just that I have a question about addiction. You have to, okay, you have to guess the answer. Okay. I'm going to give you three options. Okay. During season one of My Strange Addiction, a woman named Belinda found that her addiction to what got dangerous because it caused her to fall into a, quote, trance-like state, losing her sense of time and throwing caution to the wind. There's still the quote going on. She'll Mm -hmm. trek through treacherous terrain and wander through dangerous neighborhoods because of this addiction to A, danger, 
Okay. B, meth. Okay. C, collecting rocks. Okay, well, because it's my strange addiction, I'd say C, collecting yes, rocks. Yes, I don't have a D. I know, because that's so insane. It's so weird. It's so insane. Did I, you see the one with the guy that loves his car? I've never, oh no, but I heard about that one. I've never seen it. <laughs> he had a really sex with his sexual car? relationship yeah. with his car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I'm not going to say anything to get on TV. I'm not going to say any of these people are making this shit up, but it's a little crazy. Okay, yeah. now, really good. We're getting an A so far. <laughs> um, okay, now, who said reality is just a crutch for people who can't handle drugs? Was it A, Charlie Sheen, B, Robin Williams, C, Charles Bukowski? Well, I'd say A, Charlie Sheen. That's wrong, and I put him because uh, everybody's always going to guess Charlie Sheen. Yes, because no. he would say something like that. He would totally. Tiger's blood and winning. That, that, this would be like one of the more normal <laughs> things for him to say. It was yeah. Robin Williams. Wow. Yeah. So that's the game. <laughs> that was going to be my um, second. Second. Okay, good. Good. I'm going to give it Go to you. To, but... You know what? I'm going to give you an A minus. <laughs> but, 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 like, yeah. No, because you deserve that. <laughs> now, okay, and then the question from t- Twitter was about sex addiction, and okay. it was basically, um, I think it was just, is, I, I apologize to you if you gave this question. You so kindly provided a question for us, and I forgot to write down your name or the exact question, but I just know it was about sex addiction. Thoughts, Alexis, on sex addiction? Um, well, it's not killing people like heroin addiction is. Um, People can't. I, th- I think it brought. I to don't certain know. Levels. Okay, here's the thing: is like I don't know much about sex addiction. I know that Dr. Drew like really got on this whole like sex addiction thing, um, and that kind of made it like more popular these days. I don't know because I never was like a sex addict. Right. So I don't know. I mean, to me, it just seems so weird. Like I don't. I don't really know much about it. Like, you have lots of sex with strangers. Well, I think I it's the same thing. I think it's that same, what we were talking is. about, that desire it to is. escape, and it manifests it itself is. in... I had um, one sponsee that was a sex addict, and I told her you should go to um, Love Addicts Anonymous. Yeah, Sex and Love Addicts. Yes. And she told you, she said, I know I'm a sex addict? Or just what she described? I saw so her. Do. I saw she had certain patterns that were very extreme right and i said you might want to go and check out another meeting because i'm just not qualified right to deal with it um i mean how is it killing people i don't i don't know yeah i mean i'm i'm sure that it can be taken i mean unprotected sex and um, that's true but that's more of a health issue yeah i mean i I think that it's certainly you could i'm sure you could die from it i'll just say that but I don't. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. You could die from going in a plane. You, you could, could die, die from f- walking the street. Yes. You could we could die, die right now. Like, it could be the, <laughs> you the drop big that. California earthquake. Um, I, I don't, you know, I just, I don't know much about it. I will say this. If you feel anything that you're doing, any behavior that you're having that is used as a distraction, is it can be detrimental in your life. Yeah. And it, and it can hurt you. Um, I think that my calling is to help people who have suffered from trauma and who then for turn to chemicals, turn to chemicals. Initially, that's the biggest thing. I think that you can cross addict to anything. For me, it was like an eating disorder thing. For some people, it may be sex addiction, gambling addiction, gambling. I mean, anything can become an addiction. Anything that you use in excess that is detrimental to your life is something that you need to take a look at. And there's 
today there's so many different therapies and so many different 12-step groups. I mean, it's great. So yeah. there's really, like, you have the ability to get help. Yeah, um, and if you do think that you have a problem with it, yeah, check out. There's Sex Addicts Anonymous. There's Sex and Love yes. Addicts Anonymous. So they have Sex online. Addicts Anonymous, I feel like, is a little bit extreme because they don't have sex at all, from what I understand. I've never been to I, a I've never been to a meeting. I think maybe, I, I don't know enough. But, I mean, I say check it out. Um, yes. So what I said to my sponsee who wasn't willing to stop having sex was you should go to a, a right. sex and love Did she go? meeting. I don't know. I just made a suggestion. She's like, goodbye, No, Alexis. we still work together. She's great. But right. like, it's not your I made a suggestion. Right. Uh, and my whole thing is like helping you not have the obsession to drink and use. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think it's important, like you were saying, to help with what you know about. Yes. I, I, yeah, and I can't say that I know I know much about... I know a lot about codependency and Al-Anon. Right. That could be a part of it, too. But, right, um, right. Sex, that's a tough one. There's just so many different addictions these days. There, there are. Everybody's addicted to something. I know. And I do think that's true about, like, you know, this generation growing up with that that um, you're, you're being weaned to check out. You're learning yeah. to check out from the time your parents put that iPad yes. in front of you when you're three yes. or whatever. And um, and so it's, it's crazy. You see them at the table, like the dinner table, and they don't want to deal with the three-year-olds that got an iPad. Yeah. Uh, what Like, how does that teach? I know. What does that teach your children? Like, I understand if it's an airplane or something. Like, right. it, they, there's certain things that, you know, I'm not, like, an extremist. Like, no iPods ever. Right. Uh, but it's like, when I was a kid, like, you should go play with your kid. Let them go in nature and right. ride bikes and get out. Like, I feel like they're always inside playing video games. Because it's too dangerous out there. Oh, God. If you're going to fear the world, you're really going to have a really hard life. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to be that afraid of the world, my husband taught me that because I was, my mom raised me a lot in fear. Like yeah. Fear everything. Like, like, she had me in, like, rape self-defense classes when I was eight. Like, right, she, right. like, everybody, you know, and Evan experienced it with his grandma, like, putting, like, three inches of water in the bottom of the tub because he was going to drown. Like, if wow. you're going to fear things like that. Right, right. You're not. You're just, it's going to be a really tough life for you yeah i mean there be safe right right it's so interesting too because addiction is so addicts suffer from so much fear and fear, yet yeah. in general often are very risk-taking yes. yeah you know they suffer from the fear of like what's going to happen when i reveal my true self sitting alone with this person yeah. but not the fear of like i'm gonna go get in my drug dealer's car and be held at gunpoint yeah or like be raped yeah yeah Mm-hmm. So, okay, th- this is awesome. <laughs> I like to end on the word raped. Um, no, um, no, but do you have anything else to add? This has been great. No, no, it's been great. Okay. I'm glad that we did this. Me too. Okay, stop.